Christmas once again, church. You can remain seated. Normally we stand for the reading of God's Word this morning, uh, but we're gonna, the sermon's going to be just a little bit different. The sermon is titled, Joy to the World. Joy to the World. Joy is a theme that surrounds the birth of Christ, as we see in the scriptural account. When Mary, the mother of Jesus, was pregnant, she went to go visit one of her elderly relatives, Elizabeth, who was also miraculously pregnant. And when the pregnant Mary greeted the pregnant Elizabeth, the baby within Elizabeth jumped for joy. We find that in Luke 1.44. And Scripture makes it clear in no uncertain terms that this joyful leaping of the baby was due to the baby that was inside of Mary. Joy surrounds the birth of Jesus Christ and his coming. On the day when Jesus was born, an angel of the Lord appeared to some shepherds who were tending their flocks in a field at nighttime. The magnificence of this heavenly being, it was cloaked and surrounded by the glory and the splendor of God. And it was unlike anything that these shepherds had ever seen. And it was startling to behold such a sight. It was so terrifying that they were scared to death. And the angel of the Lord actually had to tell them, Fear not. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ, or Messiah, the Lord, the Sovereign One who rules. And we find that in Luke chapter 2. Verses 10 through 11. Don't be afraid. I have news of great joy. And that news of great joy is tied to the birth of Christ. If you fast forward a year and a half to two years later, Jesus is a toddler at this point. The most powerful man in the world at that time is Caesar Augustus, who is the Roman emperor. One of the rulers under Caesar Augustus is a guy who is king of Judea, who was a Roman man named Herod. Judea, or Judah, was what remained of the kingdom of Israel. There was no Jewish king at this time, and so a Roman king was set over them. And seemingly, out of nowhere, come these wise men, these magi, from the east, seeking to worship Jesus who was born king of the Jews. That is, king over Judah, or king over Israel. Herod, who is king over Judah, hears of this. He's a Roman king over them. He hears of this, and he summons the wise men as they are still looking to find Jesus. Herod's plan, if you're familiar with Scripture, is to kill this baby to prevent an uprising and a potential loss of his reign and his kingdom. But these wise men do not know this as of yet. So Herod lies to them. And he says that he wants to worship this baby king as well. And so he instructs them. He says, let me know when you find him and where he is, because I want to worship him too. And so the wise men seem to be fooled at first. They don't seem to be so wise after all. And they head out to find Jesus, and they see the miraculous star of King Jesus as it comes to rest over the place where Jesus was, this miraculous star. And Scripture says in Matthew 2, verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced 
exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a lot of emphasis on rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. There's an unfathomable joy related to the birth of Christ. But so as not to be deceived, they are warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And they're told of Herod's plan, his evil plan. My question is this, why was there so much joy surrounding the birth and the coming of Christ? What is all the fuss about? The way scripture talks, this is no ordinary birth, no ordinary baby, no ordinary boy. What was so extraordinary about Jesus' coming that it necessitated a joyful reaction and celebration from another baby in the womb, an angel of the Lord, and these mysterious non-Jewish wise men being ecstatic when they see the star indicating where Jesus was. I mean, being, a bo- being a born is, is an exciting thing no matter what, right? When a baby comes into the family, it's something to rejoice over, but something is very different about this birth, this baby, this boy. It's as if the world was pregnant with anticipation of his arrival, just expecting that this boy is coming. It's as if rescue had come. It's as if a righteous ruler had come. No doubt, his name Jesus indicates something of who he is. Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua, which is my name. Okay, Joshua in Hebrew, Yeshua in Hebrew, Jesus in Greek. Okay, it means Yahweh is salvation, or God is salvation. Joseph, who was Jesus's adopted father, was instructed to give this baby the name Jesus. The name Jesus indicates that he is a rescuer, a savior, and Scripture tells us specifically a savior from sin. He will save his people from their sins. And so if sin is something that people need saving from, then that means sin is harmful and deadly if they need rescue from it. And if Jesus is the one who can save people from their sin, from this deadly encounter with it, then there is great reason to be excited about his birth. In order to see why there is so much joy surrounding the birth of Jesus, we need to travel back in time. And so I have my travel machine with me. Actually, I don't, okay? We're just going to go back in time in Scripture, and we're going to go well before the birth of Jesus, and we're going to see where the story of Christ started. In fact, we actually need to travel back to the beginning of creation, the beginning of humanity, to see where our story starts with Jesus' story and where the two meet. Because our story and Jesus' story, all of humanity's story, they're all tied together. Okay? The story of Jesus and why the world needs a Savior King. I want to take you through a series of promises, a series of accounts. And when I use the word story, I don't mean story like a fable. I don't mean story like, uh, like the Little Mermaid or Peter Pan. Okay? I don't mean story like that. I mean account, historical account. When I use that word story, that's what I'm referring to, history. Okay, a historical account. We're going to go through five stories, five accounts that will give us hope for endless joy in this world. A series of promises that help 
Help us build this anticipation for a coming Savior. Now, if you don't remember all the stories, that's okay. This might be new to some of you, it might not. But I want you to get the point that there is something that's being promised through each of these stories, and we are awaiting something. That's the big idea that I want you to get. Thus, joy to the world, as you'll see. So in order to see why, let's go back in time. The first account that I want you to see in Scripture is found in the book of Genesis, which means beginnings. In the beginning, God created everything good, very good, Scripture says, including humanity. We were all once very good. Okay? Adam and Eve, the first humans created, were placed in a garden, a marvelous garden. And they were instructed to take care of creation underneath the rule of God. You have dominion, you have rule over the earth as I rule over you. And so Adam and Eve, being made in God's likeness, or God's image, they were fashioned after him. They were to be God's representatives here on earth, acting like God. That's the very purpose for which he made them, displaying his character, his nature, his attributes, his likeness, his qualities as they ruled over this world, his vice regents. In fact, that is the purpose for every one of us. That is why you were made. To act and be like God, his image and his likeness. But soon after creation, something very terrible goes wrong in this first account. Okay, What goes wrong ruins the trajectory of all of human history from then onward. Let me explain. Okay, Adam and Eve, they listened to the temptations of Satan in the garden and they disobeyed God who forbade them from eating of a particular fruit and a particular tree. This tree was called the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the fruit of knowledge and good and evil. And God warned them. He says, in the day that you eat this, you will die. You will die if you eat this. Satan, he put doubt in Eve's mind about God's character. Satan made it seem like God was withholding something from Eve, namely that she would be like God if she ate of this fruit. And so she's lying to Eve, saying, God is withholding something good. You will be more like him if you eat of this fruit. The unbelievable truth of the situation was that she was already like God, made in his image, made in his likeness. She didn't need to add anything to the way she was made. She was very good. She didn't need to alter herself at all. But she believed Satan. She saw the fruit that was edible and consumable, and she ate it, and she gave some to her husband, and he also did eat, Scripture says. At the moment that they disobeyed God, okay, creation was wrecked, and so was all of humanity. They disobeyed God, and that is one way to define sin. Remember Jesus who saves his people from their sin? This is one way to define sin, disobedience to God. Sin is disobedience and breaking God's commands. But because God's commands, they're not just arbitrary. They actually come from somewhere. They come from his nature, and they come from his character. They come from who he is. God is a God of truth, and so he does not lie. Therefore, lying is wrong. Do not lie. Okay? So sin is not just breaking God's commands. Sin is failing to live like who God is, the purpose for which you were created. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? God is, now listen to this in relation to Eve's sin. God is completely satisfied 
And he's completely content in who he is. He doesn't try to change himself. And to be like God is also to be content in the way that God has made you. But at that moment, at that moment, Adam and Eve stopped being content with how God made them. And they became discontent. And they believed the lies of Satan. And they thought they could add more to who they were. Thus, they disobeyed God. And they failed to exhibit contentment and trust in what God had said, God's word. They plunged themselves and all of humanity on a course to death and hell. Because God said, in the day that you eat that and you disobey me, you suffer the consequence of judgment and death. As soon as they sinned and disobeyed God, death crept into every single cell within them. Death crept in. They didn't die Immediately in a physical sense, but death crept in, they began to die, and spiritually they became dead, while physically they began to decay and slowly die. Every cell in them was tainted by death and corruption. And guess what? As they reproduced, they spread death to everyone and sin to everyone because of Adam and his disobedience. In fact, Scripture plainly asserts that death spread to all of us in corruption because of Adam's disobedience. His sin brought death. His sin brought damnation to all of us. And we prove that we are sinners by the way that we act. We are born corrupt, and our actions validate that we are connected to Adam. We need rescue from sin. Thus, ever since Adam, we have all required rescue. We've all required salvation because sin kills everyone and we need help. Not coincidentally, but purposefully, right after this tragic event, God promises to send a rescuer into the world. Moments after this, okay? There's not a lot of detail given in this promise. It's like a seed planted in the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning of the, the God's word. And it's, it's a seed waiting to germinate and to flower and to produce something marvelous. In Genesis 3.15, this is where we find this promise. To Satan, God says these words, and they have implications for all of humanity. To Satan, God says this. He says, I will put enmity or war between you and the woman, referring to Eve, you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, we get a little indication of what this war is going to tell. There's going to be a he that comes from Eve's seed, okay, who will bruise your head, Satan, and you will bruise his heel. A death blow was coming to you to the head, and you're going to inflict a little injury on him, but there's going to be a battle between this he. And so there's a promise of an earthly, yet spiritual battle with Satan, both earthly and spiritual in nature, as a death blow is coming to Satan, and a heel blow is coming to the seed of Eve. And again, he is said to be a he. We're expecting someone to be born who's going to destroy the one who brought sin into the world. You catching that? There's a birth coming. There's a birth coming, a boy coming, a man coming. So a promised destruction is coming to the one who led Eve and Adam into sin. A coming warrior is coming to fight on our behalf and to liberate us from this liar, this deceiver, this serpent called Satan that led humanity to hell. Now, most of you know what a prototype is. All right, proto means first. Type means kind or image. Not kind as a nice, but a kind of something, 
a, a representative of, of, of a thing, okay? So a prototype is the first of its kind. Usually we think of prototypes when it comes to inventions, okay? This promise in Genesis 3.15, it's technically referred to as the proto-evangelium. Proto meaning first. Evangelium meaning good news. In other words, this is the first good news that we see in Scripture after sin comes in. Proto-evangelium. Mankind was promised death if they sinned. Bad news. But good news is declared in seed form. We don't have all the details yet, but it's going to grow and grow and grow in Scripture through these other stories. And I'm highlighting five of them. And so God has set the stage for the rest of Scripture to be unfolding in this grand narrative, in this grand story of the one who will be uh, the rescuer. Indeed, the promise of good news is therefore for who? For everyone, all of humanity. Joy to the world. Story two. We come to another sinful situation in Scripture. The world has become so corrupt that God decided to judge the entire world with a flood. And he decided to start over with humanity, with just one family. With the gravity of sin weighing on creation, we need further reminders that God would bring good news. And it's pictured and represented to us in the account of Noah and the flood. God had Noah build an ark to preserve animal life and human life, while the rest of humanity and, and, uh, and animal life would be destroyed. There'd be a new start. Almost as if God was bringing another Adam-like head into creation onto the scene, a new beginning. Remember, the world is still awaiting a savior at this point, a he who would be born from the eve of seed. In fact, when Noah was born, his dad thought Noah could possibly be the one to bring them this relief. But Noah was not that one. He was not. Noah's life, though, in this story of the ark and the flood, it was meant to typify or to picture what this savior would do. This one promise to Adam and Eve and to creation and to us. And so God sends down rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Remember, he has Noah build a huge ark, a huge boat, huge ship. 40 days and 40 nights, the rain comes down. God opens up the deep fountains of the earth and judges all of humanity for their wickedness. They had no regard for God whatsoever. All died but Noah and his three sons and their respective wives. Humanity is starting over. After the flood, we see in Genesis 9 that God put a rainbow in the sky as a token or as a sign of a covenant, or in other words, a promise. Covenants are promises. God puts a rainbow in the sky as a reminder, as a covenant sign of the promise that he was making to all of the earth, making to all creation. The promise was this, that God would never flood the earth and destroy all of human life in this manner again. Every time humanity sees this rainbow, we see that judgment by waters will never, ever come again. And every time humanity sees this, we're reminded of God's promise. And what's fascinating about the account of Noah and the flood is not how he got all kinds of animals into the ark, or whether or not there were dinosaurs in the ark. What's fascinating is actually the point of all this, that Noah was taken away from the wicked people of the world by the same instrument of judgment that came upon the earth. He was delivered, rescued from sin, the sinners in this world, 
by the same instrument of judgment that God brought upon the world. Noah's rescue from this evil world came about by the destruction of the wicked. In other words, salvation through judgment, taken away. Early Christians were encouraged. Early Christians after Jesus' time on this earth. They were encouraged by this account of Noah in this way. The apostle Peter He would give these early suffering Christians, 2,000-year-old Christians, right, way back when, give them good news of hope by talking like this in one of his letters. He says, listen, Christians, if God was able to preserve and to rescue Noah, did you guys know that Noah was rescued? Okay. If he was able to preserve and rescue Noah when he brought the flood upon the world of ungodly inhabitants, then remember that God knows how to rescue his people from trials as the ungodly await final and eternal punishment. So the Apostle Peter used this story to encourage Christians to remind them, okay, that it's Jesus, the Lord Jesus, who will come and judge evildoers and rescue his people, that he will judge and save salvation through judgment. And so when we see the rainbow and how beautiful they are, we're reminded of God's promise to never judge the world by a flood. We're reminded of the flood account and how bad sin is, but how God delivered a man and rescued a man and a family, and he rescued them from sin, a sin-infected world. And then we're told of how in the future Jesus is going to be the one who achieves this for us, but in an eternal fashion. You see, while Jesus is king of the Jews, he's not just for the Jews. And that means joy to the world, to all of us. The third story, the third account, as we move through Scripture, we see another huge promise, another huge covenant of the one who is to come. The one who we're waiting for, who can defeat Satan, who will rescue certain humans from evil humans in this world. This third promise comes to us through a man named Abraham. To Abraham, God makes a wonderful promise or a covenant. There are three parts to this covenant and this promise. Again, God is a promise-making God. He is a promise-keeping God. These three, this covenant, three parts, it's actually dual in nature. And this promise that he makes to Abraham have repercussions for all humanity. Let's read it together. I'm going to read it to you in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, he says, Go from your country, go from your kindred and your father's house, and go to a land I will show you. There's part of the promise right there. I'm going to give you a special land. Verse 2 says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. This is promise number two. You're you're going to be a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There's a third part, that as God blesses him, God will protect him, And those who dishonor Abraham will be punished. Those who honor him will be blessed. And this blessing, though, is going to come to all families of the earth, all nations of the earth. And so God promises to give Abraham this special land. Let's just start with that one, okay? This land, the land of Canaan, the land of Israel as we know it, this would be rich with produce, Scripture says, flowing, a land flowing with milk and honey. And it would be reminiscent of the garden that Adam and Eve got kicked out of at the beginning of creation. 
It's pictured as something wonderful like that. But even Abraham knew that this promised land that was going to come to him, that this land given to Israel, Scripture tells us later that Abraham knew that it was meant to foreshadow something greater. It pointed forward to a new and restored creation at the end of time that people would live in. Not all of humanity, but those who God would give it to. Just like God gave a special land to Israel, God is going to give a new creation to a particular certain group of people where there's no evil. Where it's, God's going to undo what happened in the garden when sin came in and wrecked it all. There's a new planet coming. Okay, The new creation is a gift portrayed to us in this first part of the threefold promise, a physical land to Israel, an eternal physical land to a particular group of people, God's people. The other part of this promise is that God would cause Abraham to have a lot of descendants. Descendants. I'm going to make you a great nation. This implies births happening. And so we're expecting births to somehow affect all of human history and humanity. They'd be Abraham's descendants. Okay, These descendants would become the nation of Israel in one sense. They would be God's earthly and God's ethnic people on earth. But later we find out that there's actually a second line of descendants that comes from Abraham. And they're spiritual and physical in nature as well. And these people would be called the kingdom of God. Those who are in God's family. Okay? The second group would be comprised of who? Not necessarily just Israelites. Some Israelites, yes. But people from all nations. People from all nations that would be rescued. That would call upon Jesus as Lord across the entire planet. Across, across all time. The representatives or people from all these nations would make up one kingdom. One kingdom of God. It consists of Jews. It consists of Mexicans and Germans, and Italians, and Russians, and Ukrainians, and Indians, and people from all nations. These kingdom citizens are those who acknowledge Jesus as King, Lord. That's who's in the kingdom of God. Those who say Jesus is my King, my Lord, not me. I'm not the boss of my realm. Jesus is the Lord of me. Again, this is our Lord. He is the sovereign one, ruler of all rulers, king of all kings. The kingdom citizens who acknowledge this are the ones in the new creation. The one promised in Genesis, foreshadowed in Noah's account, all right? The one who will restore all creation. We are part of uh, the ones who look forward to him saving us and redeeming us. So truly, Israel is a great nation because Jesus came from them. And truly, the kingdom of God is even greater because it consists of people from all nations as Jesus is our king. And the third part of this promise that's made to Abraham is that God will bless Israel and its allies while punishing those who are its enemies. Just as God will bless his kingdom citizens and will destroy the enemies of his people. Remember Noah's day? The righteous one who was rescued from all those who persecuted this guy and did not uh, believe his teachings of, that God had to say, got rescued. Okay, They mocked him. So we see that God will rescue, later in Scripture, we see that God will rescue his kingdom citizens from a world that dislo- dislikes them and hates them and mocks them and persecutes them. 
Okay, so just as there's blessing for Israel, so there's blessing for God's kingdom people. Just as there's destruction for those who are enemies of Israel, there is destruction coming for those who are enemies of God's kingdom people, uh, including the church. And this promise, though, of blessing through the entire, to the entire world, because the scripture says, in you I will bless all the families of the earth. This promise ultimately has its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is not just the Savior of the Jews, but the Savior of people from all nations. That doesn't mean everybody will be rescued, but people from all tribes and tongues and languages will be rescued. Just not everybody from that particular people group. Which is why every week we pray for the Lord to rescue and save people from different people groups. Because we know that Jesus is the Lord over all nations in that regard. And he is pulling people from each of these groups that we pray for every week and that we give to, pulling people from them, saving them, and he will combine them into one kingdom people. And so far, we're looking at the backbone, the skeletal structure and understanding of the entire Bible and how it's connected to Jesus Christ. We see the story of Adam and the promise made to the world. We see the story of Noah and the promise made to the world. We see the story of Abraham and the promise made to the world. Next story. All right? We see Israel and a promise God made to them. Story four. Abraham's descendants have grown, just as God promised, and grown and grown and grown, and now they're known as the nation of Israel. They find themselves in a wilderness situation, and God comes to them and makes a covenant or a promise to them. Another one. They find themselves in a wilderness situation, and this covenant or promise, it's a whole way of living. A whole way of living. And God's going to require them to obey by this covenant, this way of living, because God freed them from the slavery of the Egyptians. If they live according to this promise, according to this covenant and this contract, this agreement, if they live according to it, God says, you will be blessed. And if they deviate from this covenant or promise and they disobey God, they will be cursed. Just like remember how Adam and Eve, if they obeyed God, they would be blessed. And if they didn't, they would be cursed. Similar situation, okay? If they lived according to it, wonderful. If they didn't, cursed. And this way of living was granted at Mount Sinai. And it includes the Ten Commandments. It includes all kinds of rules for worship, all kinds of rules for sacrifices and feasts, rules to govern just about everything you can think of. Things you can eat, things you can't eat, things that contaminate you, how to get clean from that contamination. And ultimately, breaking these rules reminds us all that all of humanity... And our disobedience to God leads to punishment. That's that's one of the points of this to show us this. While obeying God leads to reward and blessing. But there's a huge problem that keeps staring us in the face over and over again from Scripture. If blessing comes from obedience, we see in Israel that they don't abide by these rules. Just as we don't abide by the things that God tells us to do. And so the question that we should be asking as we read Scripture and hear these accounts is, how then can I be blessed if I don't obey God and do what he requires of me perfectly? Well, that's where this covenant way of living that God gave to them, that's where this sacrificial system comes in to play. Since Israel could not be perfect before God, they had to bring a perfect substitute in their place. Something that did what they couldn't do. They'd bring an appropriate, flawless animal sacrifice to God as if to say, God, you are worthy of perfection. I am not perfect, so I cannot bring you myself. 
You're worthy of perfection. So here is a substitute in my place, an animal sacrifice that is perfect, without blemish, spot, without corruption, without disease. This is my substitute. And so God receives that as pleasing to him. But because the Israelites deserve to die for their sin, just as we do, that perfect sacrifice would die in its place and it would be slaughtered. And the lifeblood was required of that animal as their sins were transferred, spiritually speaking, to that animal. Okay, so I can't bring myself. Here's a perfect substitute. And all these things, these sacrifices were accomplished by priests who stood between God and Israel. Men who were dedicated completely to offering these sacrifices to God, standing in between, bridging the gap. So God gave this fantastic way of living to show you're blessed if you obey me and you're cursed if you don't because you don't. And then I have another part of this system that's going to show how you can be made right with me. The interesting thing about these sacrifices is they never actually cleansed and made anybody right with God because they were pointing to something greater. They were pointing to someone greater. They were pointing to Jesus Christ, who is the perfect one who comes to earth and does what we don't do, which is obey God perfectly. He does that, and therefore he stands before God and says, they can't offer perfection to you, humanity can't. Therefore, Father, I offer my perfection to you on their behalf. And the Lord says, oh, but they're supposed to also pay the penalty for their sin. I will do that too. That's why the birth of Jesus is so important. This is why this was given to Israel so that the world would know that joy is coming through a Savior. Jesus did what Adam failed to do. Jesus failed what Israel failed to do. Jesus did what we failed to do. And he dies in our place as a perfect substitute sacrifice. And Jesus acts as the intermediary. He acts as the great priest, the great high priest, the priest of all priests. And he brings our obedience to God and he brings a death to God so that God is satisfied. And then he rises again proving that he is God, proving that he was the one foretold of, proving that he is judge, proving that you can trust him to save you. So this covenant life of Israel is there to teach us this. Now there's one last promise, one last story that I want to point to briefly. It's in regards to the second king of Israel. The second king of Israel is named David. He's the second king. He is the one who loved the law of God. That is to say, he loved the, co- the covenant that God made with Israel, what I just described, that whole system and way of living. David loved it. But a very special promise was made to David and his son, Solomon. Second Samuel chapter 7 says this in verse 16. God says, David, in your house, in your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Ever. A promise to a king to a small, of a small nation is made here in this fifth story. The promise includes the establishing of an eternal kingdom and an eternal throne. A descendant of David is coming who will rule forever. One is coming to be born a king. And so we have another promise of another birth. The, the world is waiting for someone to be born. And as Israel continues to await for the promised one in Genesis, they continue to sin. Israel does. And they, can, they continue to sin so bad 
that they get in a civil war, the kingdom is divided. The northern ten tribes are so evil that they are annihilated by the Assyrians under God's judgment. Later, the lower kingdom, called Judah, okay, consists of two tribes. They're, they get to the point where God allows them to get carried off into captivity as well. The Babylonians, and this is actual history, okay? Please understand that Scripture is not a feeling. Scripture is historical account of God's salvation plan, okay? So Judah, what remains of Israel, is carried off into slavery under the Babylonians. They endure 70 years of captivity, 70 years. There's few of us here that have reached that point in our life. That's a long time to live, okay? Judah or Israel, after the 70-year period of slavery, their punishment from God is over, and they are free to return to their homeland to rebuild their temple, to rebuild their covenant way of living with the sacrifices and the feasts. But they have no king. Remember the king that was promised? They have no king. They have no ruler. Where? We should be asking ourselves, where is the one from, that would come from Eve to destroy Satan? Where's the savior judge foreshadowed in Noah's account? Where's the one who will come from Abraham to bless us with salvation in all the nations of the world? Where's the one who's coming to give us a promised land, a new creation, who will make us one people from all tribes and nations and tongues? Where's the one pictured in the sacrificial system of Israel and the feast of Israel? Where's the one priest that's foreshadowed in the priestly work. The priest, where's the one that can stand between us and God and that can save us from sin? Where's this eternal king who will forever rule in the new creation on earth with its eternal citizens? Where is he? Has God forgotten to keep his promises? Has God forgotten that? 3,600 years of human history have passed roughly so far. Has God lost his ability to do what he said he would do? Is God now impotent? That's how the Old Testament feels like it's ending in the book of Malachi. And then there are 400 more years of silence from God. 400 more years. And the waiting continues. And the longing persists in some people as they await for this Coming man, the savior from sin, the king, the judge, the ultimate high priest seems to be forgotten by many others. Perhaps by this time it's just written off as fanciful fables, inspirational stories with no basis in reality. That's just what grandma and grandpa talked about. Can you feel the anticipation though? In world history, the history of Israel, as it awaits for God to do what he said he would do through through this promised, sacrificial, savior king, the whole of creation in Israelite history are longing for the promises to come to pass. We are longing for rescue from sin and death. We are longing to be rescued from all the evil that we see in the world. We're longing to be made right with God so that we can dwell with him forever in a new creation. But how long, O Lord? How long? When? Galatians 4 says this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem or rescue those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. 
because under the law we are cursed for breaking it. So Jesus was sent under law to obey it, to rescue those who don't obey it. It says, and because you are now sons, you've been rescued, you've been brought into his family, God sent his spirit, all right, the spirit of his son into you, into your heights, crying Abba, or in other words, Father. So you are no longer a slave to what? To the breaking of sin, uh, sin under the law of God. What does Jesus do? What's his name? Jesus, for he will save his people from what? Their sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. No longer bound under the, the law as disobedient ones. But you are a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. Joy to the world. The Lord has come at just the right time. Friends, family, church members, this is why the baby in Elizabeth jumped for joy when Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus, came to visit her relative. This is why the angels brought forth good news of great joy. This is why the wise men were joyfully excited, exceedingly joyful as they rejoiced to see the star of Jesus. God was keeping his word in Christ as Jesus came to save us and rescue us from the fall that Adam plunged us into. And the rest of the Old Testament is one massive story of God bringing this to pass. And it took 4,000 years of human history and waiting and waiting. And God said, now is the right time. Go save them, son. Go live a perfect life for them, son. Go die for sinners, son. Go resurrect yourself, son, and show yourself to them all who is the Savior and who is the judge. Joy to the world. And as Christ was promised to come the first time, he ascended and went to be with his father at the right hand of the throne of God. As he ascended, Scripture promises that he's going to send him a second time. And the consummation of human history will take place. And at that time, what will remain? Eternity. That's what will remain. What else will remain? A new creation. And who will dwell on this new creation? Only those who trust in Jesus to save them from their sins. And who is Jesus? The one promised to Adam and Eve in the garden. Who is Jesus? The one foreshadowed in Noah's account. Who is this Christ? The descendant of Abraham who will bless people from all nations with salvation in a restored promised land and a restored creation. Who is Jesus? The one portrayed in Israel's dramatic covenant living as a perfect one, as a sacrifice, as a priest. Who is Jesus? The descendant of David promised to rule and to reign forevermore in a new creation with his kingdom on earth. Truly, we can say, joy to all the nations, joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And truly, that is all I can ask of you today. Is there room for Christ in your life? Is there room for Jesus to reign over you as king? Is there room for Jesus to save you? Or, would you prefer to be like Herod and prefer Jesus to be eradicated from your life for fear of losing your own kingdom? That is how most people will perish when Christ comes. I don't want my kingdom to end and it will come to an end because the only kingdom that will last is King Jesus's. If you prefer to live like Herod, your kingdom will come crashing down and the only kingdom, the only kingdom will remain is that of Christ.
Destruction like the days of Noah awaits those who continue in sinful rebellion against their creator and maker, God, Jesus. That's why we need him to rescue us. Jesus only saves those who come to him. He only saves those who acknowledge their sinful ways and desire to turn from that. He only saves people who call upon him for rescue. And his perfect life, his perfect death, his perfect resurrection are the means by which he brings eternal joy to you. Joy in God with him forever. So come to him today if you have not already done so. For those of us that have done that, that's why we celebrate every Sunday. This is why this time of the year matters to us so much. It's just part of this overall story that Christ saves. I want to thank each of you for being here this morning to hear about your king. Whether you acknowledge it or not, that is what is coming to earth. And every, day, every knee will bow, Scripture says. And one day, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Every tongue. If your tongue does not want to, it will be made to one day when Jesus shows himself to be Lord of Lord. For those of us who have confessed it now, he reigns and his spirit lives in us. And we are part of his kingdom. And we want more people into his kingdom. And that's why we have assembled this morning. To make sure that this goes out online. To make sure this goes out in person. To make sure that you church people are equipped to know how to share this with other people. And that's why we give. Okay? It has everything to do with all of us, the birth of Christ. All of history centers around the God-man Jesus. Every tongue will confess one day that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. Confess him as Lord now. Confess him as Savior now. Confess that Christ came into the world to save you and to make you a son of God so that you can be an heir of God. And what good news we have. What a good God we serve. And what a good God we Christians get to love. Joy to the world. Brothers and sisters, we're going to sing a few more songs. But first, we're going to take communion as we normally do. Uh, we're going to end with a celebration of several more Christmas songs. Pastor Steve is going to come and give us our communion warning. And then we will uh, celebrate our way out of here today. All right. Thank you, brother.